Hi, welcome to Access and Opportunity, a new Morgan Stanley podcast that helps connect capital and communities. I'm your host, Carla Harris, and I'm a vice chairwoman and managing director at Morgan Stanley. Now you might know me as an author, or maybe you've seen me give a speech at a finance conference. Perhaps you've even caught one of my gospel singing performances. If we don't know each other yet, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to hearing from you as we take this journey together. Now, you're probably wondering, why another finance podcast? And here's why. In my day job, I've come across a real issue that I think we should all be talking about. Why are female and multiculturally owned businesses overlooked as good investment opportunities? In this show, I'll use my 30 years of experience on Wall Street to explore why investors are unaware of the above market returns that exist in investing in multicultural and women-owned businesses, or why they are misinformed about the potential risks of investing in historically underrepresented communities. In each episode, we'll talk with my friends, some new friends, some old friends, but all incredible entrepreneurs, investors, developers, and activists, the very people who are getting this work done today, We'll talk to them about how to dispel these misconceptions and exploit this market inefficiency. Whether you're an investor, an entrepreneur, or someone who wants to just better understand these market inefficiencies, Access and Opportunity has something for you. Come join me for the ride. In this episode of Access and Opportunity, we will feature Sundial Brands. What was once a small minority-owned business that has now turned into a multi-million dollar empire. And we're going to talk to the co-founder and CEO, Rich Lou Dennis. You and I have only known each other for a short period of time. But the more time I spend with you and the more I read about you, the more I greatly admire you. Already had a lot of respect, or as the kids say, mad respect for you. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, I really admire what you've done, how you took an adverse situation that was going on in your home country of Liberia yeah. to actually thinking about your grandmother's, let me call them potions, yep. Miss Sophie Tucker, yep. and then actually making the decision to go into business with your mother. Yeah. I mean, that is just something Well, to my be... mother made the decision to go into business <laughs> with me. Let's be... Well said. Well said. Okay, I'll take that. Absolutely. I don't have it that good. <laughs> All right. But that's awesome. But that's awesome. That doesn't yeah. always happen, and I don't think we can think of any other example like that in the marketplace today. Yeah. And then now yeah. look at what you've done with it. So we have to give extra credit to your mother because yeah. look at what she produced in you as a human being, and then obviously her own prowess as a businesswoman and yeah. as an entrepreneur. So yeah. uh, kudos to, I'd like to interview your mom too. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what motivated you to start the business. Um, I know that there were conflicts at home, but what really made you say, I'm going to start this business or your mother to say, I'm going to start this business. And why beauty and wellness when that's such a crowded space? Yeah. You know, because of the war going on both in Liberia and Sierra Leone, which is where my mother's originally from Sierra Leone. I was born and raised in Liberia. Went back and forth between Liberia and Sierra Leone doing all of the different conflicts, escaping one, running from one to the other to escape what was going on at one. When I graduated college, and it was now full-blown war in both places, we didn't have a choice as to where to run to. We were here. My mother had come to my college graduation on the last flight that left Monrovia before they bombed the capital city. And in that, my mother's home, everything that she had was destroyed. And so she was here with a suitcase, and she was supposed to be here for two weeks. Wow. Um, And it's now been 28 years. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What sort of motivated us to do this 
was we had all of this traditional expertise around health and wellness, around beauty, from my grandmother making and selling natural products in our village market in Sierra Leone using local produce. And so we didn't have the options of going out and getting jobs because we were in this status of review from an immigration perspective. They didn't quite know what to do with people in this situation at that time, but we had to eat. We had to have a place to live and and we had to live a life. My mother says to me, well, maybe we should just start doing what your grandmother does. Went out and got a table at Home Depot, a folding table, and started making soap and went up to 125th Street and 5th Avenue, set up a table and started selling it. So it wasn't a, it was a, a necessity to survive, right? And to be able to feed ourselves and to be able to clothe ourselves and, and not be reliant on somebody else because that's that's exactly how it felt. And so my mother's a very proud woman. Definitely taking assistance was not an option. That's what motivated us and what that's what started us. And I think, you know, as I reflect back on it today, that situation is not very different from the situation of many, many people of color, millions of people of color, throughout this country and throughout this world who all of a sudden find themselves in situations where they don't have the same access as everybody else. So now I have to ask you, I am a consumer uh-huh. of products sold on 125th Street. Yes. <laughs> and so I know that it is not easy to get people's attention. Nope. Um, and so what was your pitch? How did you get people to buy your product? Because there's a lot of competition yeah. with respect yeah. to supply. Absolutely. You know, 25, 26 years ago, because of the, the nature of shea butter and the nature of African black soap okay. and the way that we made it and didn't have packaging and didn't have any of the sort of traditional business models that we now have, we were standing on a corner with a calabash. Do you know what a calabash is? I'm not sure. So a calabash is like a gourd. We turned it into a bowl. So okay. You, you I've cut seen it them and I didn't know that's it what it was bowl. called. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then we fill it with the shea. Right. We'd pour the shea into it and then we'd have this 40 pound bowl of shea butter on the table and then we we cut it and then weigh it out. So you had a scale and you had this this thing that nobody had ever seen before. We'd be cutting and putting it in plastic bags and weighing it out. So the interest alone around what are these guys doing right, um, was a showstopper. Yeah. And then nobody knew what shea butter was and nobody knew what African black soap was or why it was good or where it came from. This is what we were doing on a street corner in 1992 was talking to people about what shea butter was, where it came from, why it was good for you, what are the ingredients you could mix in and how you would use it. And so people would then, it became very interactive. And so people would say, yeah, you know, my grandmother uses avocado or we use mayonnaise or we use this or we use that and we use molasses, we use, right? And could you add a little bit of that to this because she uses it for this purpose and she uses... So what we were really getting was a firsthand engagement with consumers Uh around what they wanted and what they couldn't find at retail. Mm -hmm. And so this allowed us to build a brand, a business, products around customized solutions for need states, which at the time nobody was doing in, and still nobody is really doing other than us, at retail. 
everybody else as well. You know, there's not enough volume here to serve this one. There's not enough volume here to serve that one. We came at it very differently and said, we're going to aggregate the volumes around need states. Nobody was serving people of color around their need states. Mm -hmm. And so we focused even more intently on serving the need states of people of color with a third piece to that, which is across life stages. That's what we did. Wow. Okay. So as you think about different need states, and even if you're thinking about one woman across all of her different stages of life, uh, at some point you realize that means product proliferation. That means Mm -hmm. more products out there. And that also means going beyond 125th Street. Yeah. Because with 125th Street, I could argue that you could almost anticipate your demand on any given day because you get to know the traffic. But when you're going to get bigger, you don't really know what that looks like, and you're going to need some capital around that. Exactly. So let's talk about how you did that. As you yeah. now going from the corner to uh, different packaging to thinking about you need to sell this in different places because if it's selling here, it's going to sell in Chicago, yeah. it's going to sell in Oakland. Let's yeah. talk about expansion. Yeah. How'd you get that capital? What did you do? Yeah. How'd you think about it? Yeah. Well, so the first piece was capital wasn't available to us, and it's not for lack of effort. So we actually didn't get any capital until we did our Bain deal in 2015. Wow. So how did you try, though? You said you didn't get outside we, capital. How yeah. did you know? What, what made you say it wasn't available? We talked to many private equity firms who either didn't see the vision, didn't understand the mission, or didn't see the opportunity to serve a consumer that they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so were reluctant to invest behind it. Mm -hmm. And then those that did saw it with so much risk that the capital they were willing to put in came at such an expensive cost that it really didn't make sense to do it, right? It was so costly that we would have had to have given up our entire business in order to do that. And at the end of the day, this is also about creating wealth for our families and Mm -hmm. for our community and not just for investors. Mm -hmm. Those options just weren't available in the way that we needed them to be available. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we had built a business that was already several hundred million dollars in revenue that we actually found partners that were, and we found an incredible partner in Bain that was willing to give us capital at the cost that our contemporaries got capital at. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that you went from a few thousand dollars a week to uh, hundreds of millions of dollars before you were able to attract outside capital. How did you drive the business between points A and point B, was that all just internal investment? Every time you made money, you just put it back into the business and you incrementally kept growing? Yeah. So this is my favorite part of the story. So my mother, who's still our treasurer today, would collect all of the revenues and would pay the electric bill, the water bill, would buy the food. And for four years, that's all we did. So nobody took a salary. There were 12 of us living in a three-bedroom apartment in Queens, and we plowed every dollar back into the business Mm -hmm. that wasn't necessary to survive. Mm -hmm. So there was no stipends or even allowances, let alone a paycheck. (laughs) There was no, you know, you couldn't gain weight because if you gain weight, the clothes that you have wouldn't go go work. 
<laughs> so for four years, we lived in a moment in time, yeah. right? Um, and that created a discipline yes. around cash flow. That mm-hmm. created a discipline around where you invest. So we would literally go out and sell on a street corner today, take that money, come back, and go buy supplies for tomorrow mm-hmm. and, and just repeat that cycle. And as we built the business, that just became a normal thing that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a discipline that I try to, you know, not everybody has to be as dramatic with it as we were. But I think that's a discipline that many, many entrepreneurs, uh, especially entrepreneurs of color, need to pick up on, right? Mm-hmm. Because the work that we're all trying to do now to bring equity and parity around how we go out and raise capital is going to take some time to get where we need to get. And we're getting there. We're moving rapidly, I must say. But there is no substitute for discipline in investing back in your business Mm -hmm. because you raise capital and now you give up something for that capital, which is equity. And as you give up that equity, you have less and less of a return to yourself, right? right? You have less and less when you do exit, when you do do larger transactions, you lose out on maximizing your wealth. Mm -hmm. And so I caution people to A, make sure that you absolutely need the capital and B, that you get the capital at an affordable price, Mm -hmm. but C, and most importantly, that you're not taking capital you don't need. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to come back to your decision. You said it took you three years to decide whether or not to take on outside capital and to take on outside capital. And I want to pivot into that. But let me just make a statement because I want to make sure that our audience understands the gravity of what you just said. So one of the reasons that they probably were the ideal partner was, first of all, you had a firm that had a philosophy that was open, willing to listen, willing to learn new things about new markets that they didn't necessarily understand, but more importantly, had already embraced having inclusivity at their table in order to understand the gaps that might be in their own thinking. And that came in the form of Governor Deval Patrick. And then being able to have him open enough to listen to what you all had to say, understanding the gaps and understanding the translation he needed to make from you as an opportunity to the asset allocators in the end of the day. So for For those who are investors, again, I can't underscore the point of the way that you find these outsized market opportunities, because I would argue Sundial is an outsized market opportunity when you think about the returns that Bain made, especially on your next transaction to Unilever, which you'll get to. They wouldn't have seen that if they had not been willing and open and look at a market that they didn't really understand that they might have perceived had inordinate risk when, in fact, had far less risk and an outside opportunity. Exactly. And for entrepreneurs listening, I want them to understand, again, the power of the relationships, your initiative, your ability to make the conversation, and being steadfast in the things that you really cared about, but also flexible enough to understand what you needed to do in order to be attractive to that kind of capital. It's a very valuable point because we see ourselves as a conduit now to bring these different relationships Mm -hmm. together, right? Mm -hmm. We've had the good fortune to be in the boardroom with Bain. We've had the good fortune to spend time with the people at at Carlisle and at TPG and at all of these firms that you want to be in front of. We've also had the good fortune to spend time with a lot of the smaller private equity players over these 25 years or so. So now we see ourselves as a conduit of bringing all of this together mm-hmm. um, and helping not just the financial community, but also the entrepreneurial community, which is really the most important part of this. Right. It's not just giving them exposure here, 
right? Because exposure by itself doesn't get it done. It's providing them with the tools, with the resources, with the expertise, with the understanding of what you have to do in your business in order to be ready to do business at this level. What I don't want to see happen is entrepreneurs, you know, young entrepreneurs that have the talent, that have the understanding, that have the business ideas, that have the brand, that have the product, spend 25 years to get ready for this conversation. Right. Right. They'll miss it. Because they'll miss it. Right. And the rest of the market sees it and they'll go faster. Mm -hmm. So our job is to engage with them and to help them move so much faster. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. That's exactly exactly right, because I don't think that people appreciate the inordinate opportunity that's out there with representing or or investing in communities and entrepreneurs that just haven't had access. It is, in my opinion, by definition, if there is a market inefficiency, there is an extraordinary opportunity for return. That's what the market is all about. I see it every day in the stock market. Absolutely. When there is an undervalued company that somebody has found, that person who gets there first before the rest of the market figures it out is the one, is the one that, that gets the outside gains. And exactly. that's what we're sitting here looking at right now. Exactly. So before I, I turn into a little bit about what you're looking for mm. in, in the in the new fund, let's talk about that decision about when it was time to take on outside capital. Because mm. I've met a lot of entrepreneurs in my time as a banker who don't want to give up the equity at the right time. Yep. And I keep saying 100% of zero is zero. zero so exactly. if you don't if you, <laughs> you don't raise the capital, you you may end up with nothing, and and that you got 100% of nothing. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about that decision process and how you thought through it and how you made the decision. We know how you got to the partner, yeah. but how did you get to the answer yeah. that you should do it? So you know we talked about having a north star and what it takes to really be able to sit in front of a Bain and be able to give them the confidence to invest in you, mm-hmm. I think is where that three years was spent, okay. right? It was one was, okay, who's the partner? Who's the right type of partner? Not necessarily who's the partner, but who's the right type of partner, right? And then where do we have to be to be able to create value for ourselves mm-hmm. and for them? And then once we pulled all of that together and felt like, okay, Now we don't just have a business that is throwing off cash, that is growing very rapidly at a very profitable clip. We also now have a a very well-run business. And I think that's one of the things that made the difference because they weren't just seeing a great idea. They were seeing a great idea run properly, Mm -hmm. right, with Mm -hmm. a team that was able and focused on executing at the same levels as people that had 20, 30 times more resources than we have. Mm-hmm. That's where I think we created the most value. Okay. And that's where I think when we work with entrepreneurs today, that's where I think we drive them the focus and that's where we spend the time. You looked at the business and you saw that there was an enormous opportunity that clearly, despite the fact that you were already profitable, you were not going to be able to prosecute that opportunity if you didn't have more capital. So therein lies the decision. Now, let's talk about the next big decision that you made to actually take that, which had grown even more after that investment, Mm -hmm. into the partnership and the sale to Unilever. Yeah. How did that decision happen? How'd you think about that? Because that is something that a lot of entrepreneurs of color struggle with. And those who have done it, as you know, get all of this out size criticism around, oh, my goodness, you sold out, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, help the entrepreneur who's listening to that, who's at that critical decision, make that decision, yay or nay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the things that really helps to make this decision or these types of decisions easier is having a North Star as to what it is that you're Mm -hmm. actually trying to do. 
what we were trying to do, as I said earlier, was build a business that could invest its profits back into our communities. And what we then needed at this stage of our growth was scale. We had done all of this work over 27 years, and we had impacted, or we have impacted, just about 16,000 women in rural West Africa, and and the idea was investing our profits back to raise them above poverty. And we have gotten 16,000 women above that that poverty That's outstanding. Congratulations. Thank you. But it's still only Mm 16,000 women, and there are millions of women that need a level playing field, that need access, that need all the things that we've just talked about. And so we started to think about, well, what does this look like at scale, Mm -hmm. right? How do we go from 16,000 women to 100,000 to 200,000 to half a million women, right? We need infrastructure. We need resources. We need a global infrastructure. Mm -hmm. One of the things that becomes very clear to you as a black entrepreneur, whether you're African, European, wherever you come from, mm-hmm. right? But as a black entrepreneur, yep. is that we don't have businesses of scale. Mm-hmm. There is no opportunity to partner with another black business to scale. And so how do we create businesses that can do that? That was the first thing. And so for us, that meant we need today to find a partner that can give us the ability to scale so that we can take that and invest it back into other businesses and people of color that will now give us an opportunity to Mm -hmm. to build global platforms, Mm -hmm. right? The need states of people of color are not just limited to people in the U.S. That's right. Or to people in Africa or to people in Latin America Mm -hmm. or to people in Europe, right? It's It's a global opportunity. But more than that is that we needed a partner like we needed with Bain, a partner whose DNA was around building better communities for the people that they serve. Mm -hmm. And so for us, there was only one partner, and I don't just think for us, anybody that's looking for that at at a global scale, Mm -hmm. Unilever is the only partner. Mm -hmm. Understood. So, and a lot of it, it sounds like, Rich, it was your desire to take advantage of this huge opportunity that exists now. Because the other argument is that you could have just continued to build. You're already on a roll. You clearly have opportunities for this, the capital that you got from Bain, other capital along the way. But here was an infrastructure that and a philosophy and a vision and a core DNA that gave you the opportunity to prosecute it now. So if you're an entrepreneur that's sitting in this position, Mm -hmm. the part of the trade-off is whether or not you take a slower route that obviously is going to expose you to lots of different economic cycles, Mm -hmm. all for the benefit of holding the whole thing yourself and therefore not being able to impact as many people uh, in a shorter period of time as you clearly are going to be able to do with the muscle and the strength and the global footprint of a partner like Unilever. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And you mentioned earlier the heat that black entrepreneurs take from the black community, or I shouldn't say from from some members of the black community. Mm When we do these transactions and, you know, you sold out, you did this, you did that. And I think what we have to do is we have to spend time in our communities helping them understand the challenges of not just being a black entrepreneur trying to scale businesses, Mm -hmm. right, but also to help them understand the concept better around wealth Mm -hmm. and around generational wealth and around community wealth and what has to happen 
in order for us to bring that wealth into our communities. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the examples that I like to use is because we started out about the same time, a wonderful business and brand called Carl Kanai. And Carl Kanai was doing the baggy clothing and fashion out of our communities back in the very early 90s. I remember. When no one else was, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Carl Kanai, as a brand and as a business, does not exist today, right? Well, it made, you know, people know what the brand is, but that business isn't there today. It existed for over a decade, yeah. Mm -hmm. But when you think about what Ralph Lauren was able to do with that style, that fashion, right? Billions of dollars in revenue. What Tommy Hilfiger was able to do, billions of dollars in revenue. What Timberland was able to do, billions of, all of these came from their being exposed to this type of fashion from our culture through what they were seeing with brands like Carl Kanai and Cross Colors and, and, and these different brands that were exposing on the main stage what people were doing in our culture. That, to me, is an economic travesty. We cannot continue to develop brands and businesses in our communities not monetize them and allow our culture to be monetized by other companies and by other communities. And those resources then go into those communities, Mm -hmm. right? We need to have those resources in our communities. The way that we do that is by building businesses that can scale and reinvesting them back in. Part of building businesses that can scale means transacting where there are resources in order to do so. When we were going through that three-year period, I went to every black successful celebrity uh, institution that I knew, and none of them had the resources or the desire. Some had the desire, not the resources. Some had the resources, not the desire to go this road, right? So the other part of it is not just going out into into the financial community, but going out into our communities where we have successful people and providing a vehicle through which they can invest back in. Mm-hmm. It's not that they don't want to invest back in. It's that they, too, have concerns, mm-hmm. right? Because they haven't seen it happen. Right. They've tried and they've lost, mm-hmm. right? We now have to create the vehicles through which not just the financial institutions in the world can come back and invest in our communities and, and make returns there, but so that black people that have these resources can also be able to invest back in and it not just be we did a playground in the south side of Chicago, Mm -hmm. right? Because the playground in the south side of Chicago provides a service and a need, but it doesn't help us create wealth, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What we need is to be investing in businesses that can create wealth in these communities so that the young ones coming up can see that. They can be a part of that. They can, too, have aspirations and say, oh, you know what? Uncle Jim did this. I can do that, Mm -hmm. you know? Aunt Sarah is doing this. Oh, I can do that. So let's talk about the vehicles to create wealth. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about the fund. Mm -hmm. That's one of the key tools one can look at in this environment today to create wealth is to create a fund or to, more importantly, invest in one that has a high probability of being successful, like I would predict that the New Voices Fund will be. So tell our (laughs) listeners a little bit about that. And more importantly, speak to the entrepreneurs about the kinds of things that you are looking for to invest in in the fund. Mm -hmm. The idea around New Voices, or the New Voices Fund, is that we have many, many entrepreneurs in our communities, especially women of color entrepreneurs, that have minimal access to capital. And because they have minimal access to capital, 
are either dissuaded from building businesses or are stuck in great businesses that can't grow. You know, something like I think it's, it's less than a penny of every dollar that gets invested in this country goes to women of color, which is just ridiculous. We've said we're going to take a stand. We're going to invest here, but we're not just going to put in capital because capital alone doesn't do it for a community that hasn't had access, that hasn't been able to attract expertise, talent. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have three pillars, capital, access and expertise. And so because of our history in you know the past 26 years, 27 years, building the Sundial business through all of its varying stages, there are some inherent needs that we understand as a result of having doing this. And so what we've done is we've taken all of those needs that we saw over those years, we've organized them into the buckets that we believe are the most important, and now we're bringing resources to each of those. So when we talk about demystifying the opportunities, the thought process traditionally is you give you give capital and then they should go be able to build it. Well, you know what? The reality of it is that the world that we live in doesn't give them the access even when they have the capital. And the expertise doesn't necessarily come to them because they're afraid, well, what happens when you run out of capital? Uh, what happens if I leave this great paying job with health care and, you know, all of these perks that I currently have to go into a, a startup that I know is not going to be able to go to the bank and get a loan? So we've got to provide those bases mm-hmm. uh, in order that our entrepreneurs can, can, can have a, a, a fair shot at being as successful as their counterparts. So we like to do a little something that we think is fun that will allow our listeners to get to know you a little bit better mm-hmm. as a person. We call it a lightning round. So we pick okay. all kinds of topics that you just sort Uh-oh. of give us your first answer. All right. So here we go. Favorite Sundial brand product? African Black Soap. What's your favorite book or magazine? Uh, Essence. Do you prefer the city or the countryside? Uh, city. Are you a winter or a summer guy? Uh, winter. Coffee or tea? Tea. Text or talking? Text. Last thing you downloaded? A car magazine. Favorite vacation destination? Used to be Puerto Rico. Hopefully we can get that back up and running so that we can go back, yes. Okay. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Martin Luther King. Okay. What's one word that you'd like to describe your legacy? Purposeful. Okay. Richard Dennis, I say thank you very much. This is Carla Harris. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Carla. 